The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Well, let's go to Leviticus chapter 19 today. We continue in our series through the Old Testament, looking at stories of redemption of the Old Testament, how the Old Testament points to Jesus, prepares us for Jesus, speaks of Jesus. And so I told you that we would be looking at a bunch of different narratives and genres and themes in the Old Testament and how these are, are so important to us understanding who Christ is and what he has come to do. And so Leviticus chapter 19, I'll start in, uh, start in verse 1 and read to 18. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it or on the day after, and anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. If it is eaten at all on the third day, it is tainted, it will not be accepted. And everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity. Because he's, he has profaned what is holy to the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not... Swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. But you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do, not, do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. And you, you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The stories of the Old Testament show us the result of sin and the effects of sin. We've been studying this now for five weeks. There's murder in the Old Testament. There's cheating. There's broken relationships. There's injustice of all different kinds. But what we learn in the Old Testament is we see all these effects of sin from the Garden of Eden and onward. We see of all these effects, the greatest and worst of all of those sins is, is this interference with God's primary purpose in creating us, and that is to have a relationship with Him. So of all the bad things that happen because of sin, the, the worst thing is that we have this cut-off relationship with God who loves us and has created us for relationship with Him. And I know, as I, as I joked briefly before, that Leviticus is your favorite book, right? I mean, when you're doing your yearly study, uh, reading the Bible in one year, you get to February and you say, finally, we get to Leviticus. This is the moment I shine. Honestly, there's a good chance you've never read it. 
There's a good chance you, have, you, have, uh, you only know what's in the book of Leviticus because of, you know that it's, it's, it's weird. It has weird commands and it has just uh, laborious and tedious commands. Everything from what you should eat and not eat, uh, what kind of fabrics you should and shouldn't wear. Um, everything from uh, rules to, to family life to dietary laws to relationship laws to sexual morality and the use of money. And all of these, these burdensome laws that... So if you haven't read it, maybe you think, well, these are, these are weird things that happened a long time ago, but we're, we have, we've, we're a modernized culture now. We, the church has moved on from those things. It's 2016, and those are, those are old. Those are old days. We don't have to do that anymore. So the book of Leviticus uh, contains some tedious laws, and the reading can be very slow and laborious for you. But today, um, you're going to see it in a different way. This is my goal and my hope, is that you will you'll see something so different. My hope is that you will see it as, as nothing less than this incredible treasure trove of illustrations and promises and pictures and foreshadows of the incredible blessings that we have in Jesus Christ. And as you read this and hopefully in the future come to understand Leviticus and put in the time to study it, you will see it just out the beauty of what Leviticus is. I can't believe beauty in Leviticus. I used both of those words in the same sentence. It's amazing. And here's how Leviticus does this. It describes God's will for our life. It reminds us of God's promise to rescue us from the effects of sin. And it proves our absolute need for Jesus. And that's what we're going to look at today as we look at chapter 19. And first, Leviticus describes God's will for our life. It describes what God hopes for us and desires for each and every one of us. Leviticus is God's no-nonsense charge to his people, and it centers on this command in verse 1 to 2. It says, Tell my people, gather the church together and tell them, Be holy as I am holy. And everything that God desires for us centers around this command, that he is holy and he desires for us to be holy. He wants us to be holy. Think about what you wanted to be when you grew up. I wanted to be a, a... a candy store owner that you laugh it's true and that sold nothing but penny candies because we used to go to the store uh, in this small town that we grew up in and on a corner store at the middle of the, the roundabout was this store called Carmazzi's and Mr. Carmazzi sold penny candies and he made everyone so happy and I just I wanted to do that I said I'm going to open up a candy store that sells nothing but penny candies and then as I grew a little older I I realized that this was an irrational goal, and I changed my goal, and I wanted to be, a, uh, I wanted to be the operator of a Ferris wheel <laughs> when, I, when I grew up. And I thought, look at just the, I want to be that guy. I want to be that guy who presses the button and, and helps kids get on and, and get off, and I just wanted to do that. And often when, when parents ask, you know, when you ask parents, you know, what do you desire for your kids, or you think about your the profession of kids, maybe if you have grown adult children, and maybe they have yet to find their, um, their, you know, their identity in life. They have, they have yet to find that real career or, or, or relationship that really makes them happy. And you might even say, I don't really care what they do or who they're with. I just want them to be happy. You said that before? You felt that before? Imagine if a parent said, I don't care what my, what my children does, I just want them to be holy. 
Or a college student says, I am studying holiness so that when I get out of school, I can live a life of holiness. Imagine if, if we said things like that. Now, I didn't open up a candy store, and I, I've never operated a Ferris wheel. And, and, and uh, not yet anyway. There's still time. There's still plenty of time. And many of you didn't graduate if you went to school, college. You didn't, you didn't graduate with the degree you started, and maybe you're in a field today that is very different from what you thought you would be in the first place. And when we think about God's will for our life, we often think, think about this. When you think, what's God's will for my life? You often think about your profession. You think about your future spouse. You think about uh, a town that you will live in. You think about the condition of your physical health. And all of these things are contributing to our understanding of what it means to be happy. Because we think that God's will for our life must be to be happy, to be a content child. Because that's what I want for my kids. I I don't care what they do or or who they're with. I I just want them to be happy. And maybe that's God's ultimate goal for us. It doesn't matter who we are or what we do. He just wants us to be happy. And these are the things that that make me happy in life. But here's what Leviticus tells us and, and elsewhere in Scripture, that when it comes to knowing what God desires for us when we grow, when we grow up, he, he doesn't leave us in suspense. He doesn't keep us waiting. He tells us the life that He imagines that we should have as our Heavenly Father, what He desires for us. And if we were to ask God, what is it that you desire for my life? He replies, as he already has, Be holy. Be holy, for I am holy. And it's in pursuing holiness that you will learn how to define what it means to be in in a state of happiness in your life and with God. Holiness is a big deal. It's more than just having good family values. It's more than just keeping God's rules. It's more than just those things. It's Holiness is God renewing His image in us, increasingly. It's renewing God's image in us. That's what it means to be holy. You see, Adam and Eve were made in innocence, and they were created in the image of God. And sin did not destroy, it did not take away the image of God, but it it, it thoroughly and exhaustively tainted it. It it destructed it, it broke it, to where that image of God was, was ruined, but not gone. God calls, God desires to renew his image in us. And that comes through holiness. It's God making us more and more like Him and restoring in us all the things that have been broken because of sin and the effects of sin in our life. And there's a reason why God desires us to be holy. And I've mentioned this before, and it's an important thing to remember. Every time uh, we see a command in Scripture, every time the Bible tells us how to live, it always tells us why we should live that way. It always gives us the reason why we should do that. And God's not interested in in just behavioral change. He's not interested in us being really great people. He calls us into a relationship with himself that will change everything in our life. He desires us to be holy holy because he is holy. And that's the reason he gives us. God is God, not because he's powerful or wise or all-knowing. He is those things, but he is God because he is essentially holy. If you think about what characteristics of God make him essentially God, what is it about God that makes him God? He is holy. He is separate. He's set apart. He's unique. He's not like us. His identity is tied to his holiness. Do you see how often in this passage that he reminds his readers and, and us that who he is? I am the Lord. I am the Lord. 
I am the Lord your God. He says this so many times. The name of the Lord is Yahweh. This is the word that God, this is how God presents himself to his people. He says, I am Yahweh. And the well-known pastor uh, John Piper says that whenever we see the name Yahweh, as he presents himself as Yahweh, he's reminding us of who he is. He's reminding us of his identity. He's reminding us of who essentially he is. That God is the absolute standard of truth. He's the absolute standard of goodness and beauty. That he alone is, is utterly independent. That he is the absolute reality and everything that is not God completely depends on God for their, for their being and their existence. God is God because God is holy, set apart, unique, and other than anything else and everyone else. No one is like God. Think about this command. Be holy, for I am holy. God is saying there's, there's absolutely nothing that can be done to improve on who I am. And yet, I desire you. I desire a relationship with you. I think this, is, this changes how we read this command. And I don't know if we've ever read it in such a way. I haven't until I really sit in this for a while and sit in this passage. I Think about it. Be holy as I am holy. What, what tone do you read that in? What, what's ringing in your head as you hear those words or in your heart? This reminds me of, uh, let me deviate here for a moment. It reminds me of Lord Business from the Lego movie. It's a... Uh, it's a movie, Lord Business. He's this dictatorial, insecure, narcissistic <laughs> leader, right? And he says to you know, the people he's in control of, he says, all I'm asking for is complete perfection. <laughs> and he gets frustrated with them. Is the littlest, the, even the, the appearance of a mistake, he just jumps on them. When you hear God say, be holy, for I am holy, do you hear him say like that? All I'm asking for is just be perfect. All I'm asking for is complete perfection. What is wrong with you? Why can't you understand this? Do you see him towering over you? I am God. Be better. To be holy. And he says, nothing improves on who I am, and I want relationship with you. It changes the tone of how we read this. I think God is doing something different and having a different tone than even the way I've even read it this morning. I think that God is saying, be holy. Come on. Be holy. I'm holy. Be holy. Be with me. Know me. Be holy. Be where I am, because I am holy. Does that change the way that you read this and his commands instead of just like, stop messing up already so that I can love you? God is saying, be holy. You won't find life anywhere else but in me. You won't find joy anywhere else. You won't find the meaning and identity for what you desire but in me. You won't find goodness everywhere, anywhere else. You'll look for it. You'll pursue it in other things, but you won't find it. Come, be holy. Be with me. I am goodness. I am truth. I am life. And the book of Leviticus is God's love letter to you. You never knew that. The book of Leviticus is God's love to you, an invitation to you to come and be with me. Let's have a relationship together. But let's not ignore these obvious and, and weird laws in Leviticus too. And how does that fit into God's desire to know us? 
This is the second point, is that God, it, Leviticus reminds us of God's promise to rescue us from the effects of sin. He looks upon his creation and as his people and says, I want to have relationship with you. I created you for relationship with me, to know me in a way that is so unique that no one else in creation can have this kind of relationship with me. I want to dwell with you. But you don't realize how far the gap is from where you are to where I am as a holy God and a sinful people. So in God's grace, God gives a protocol for how sinful people can have a relationship with a holy God. A perfect and holy God. You see, we have, like today, and rightfully so, we have a well-developed understanding of God's imminence. His imminence is His closeness, His relationship, His presence in our life. Through Jesus Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit, we talk about a personal relationship with God. We talk about Jesus living in our heart. And even the way we describe it is very personal. It's very relational. It's very friendly. But think about the perspective that God's people had at this time where they did not have that. They had an overwhelming understanding of God's transcendence, His His other than us, his above us, his, his holiness, Yahweh. No one's like me, you're not like me. I do not need anyone. All things are in existence because I've called them into existence and nothing that exists is, is, exists apart from me. And then here you have God, powerful, all-knowing. Leviticus was written right after the people, God's people were rescued out of Egypt. And so they just saw the Red Sea parted. They just saw uh, Pharaoh's uh, army destroyed. They were just rescued from slavery. And God's saying, I am Yahweh. And they say, we know. We get it. And he says, and I want to have a relationship with you. I want to come down and be with you. I want to dwell with you. Emmanuel, God with us. And so he initiated the tabernacle. And Moses would construct this tabernacle, a place of dwelling with God, where he would go and meet with God on behalf of sinful people. And all of these rituals are laid out. God is giving a protocol. How can a sinful person have a relationship with a holy God? He says, let me show you how you can do that. You can only approach God in worship if you ate certain foods and not others. You wore certain kinds of clothing and fabric and not others. You refrained from touching certain things and and, and, and so on. And the point of all this is, is to vividly communicate over and over again how spiritually unclean we are and how we can't go into God's presence without purification. Leviticus is famous for our understanding of the things that are clean and not clean. Maybe you're familiar with this. There are things that are clean and there are things that are not clean. There are dietary laws that describe what was clean and unclean to eat and, and the things that were unclean to eat. If you ate a grasshopper, you couldn't hang out with anybody for like 24 hours. It's true. It's in there. Look it up. And there were laws about what you could and could not come in contact with as it related to skin diseases and bodily discharges. There were laws about kinds of fabrics that you could wear and could not wear. God did not tell us these things to teach us about dietary laws or how to be healthy or to prevent the spread of diseases. He tells us these things to give us a graphic illustration of the effects of sin. Animals fed on animals after the fall as an effect of sin. So there's certain kind of animals that you couldn't eat, scavenging animals. You'd eat vegetarian animals. Childbirth became painful and bloody as a result of the effects of sin. 
Sexual relations became infected and sinful passions only after the fall. Children were born into birth defects only after the fall. Mold and mildew grew on things as they rotted as a result of sin and only after the fall. And because of sin, they're evidence of the decay of creation as a result of sin. And in this, God is demonstrating that I will not abandon my creation that has become unclean. I will make it clean. And it's a daily reminder for God's people as they were involved in these tedious rituals every single day. It was a present and daily reminder to them of the effects of sin. And one day God would make it right. He's not going to abandon us completely. He will restore. He will make a way in the midst of decay and rot and, and disease where we can be in a perfect relationship with him. And in no better way do we see this promise played out than in the ritual of sacrifice. Sacrifice is the God-given vehicle through, through which sinful men and women can approach a holy God. Verse 5, he says this, when you offer a sacrifice to God, when you offer a sacrifice, a peace offering to the Lord, you shall do it so that you can be accepted. Do this so that you can be accepted, so that you can worship me. This is great news for them. God could be approached by this worthy substitute of, of the life of a perfect animal by giving a perfect sacrifice. And this would cost you something. Imagine the emotional, the physical, the, uh, the financial burden of raising an animal just for the purpose of leading it to be slaughtered. Imagine if you didn't live close to uh, the temple and you needed to bring a sacrifice for your sins to be offered and you had to travel a long distance. I mean, it's hard traveling with toddlers. Have you ever traveled with a goat? <laughs> Imagine the burden, the financial burden. People didn't have a lot to lose. Imagine you took the, the, the one animal that was the most, the most fertile, the one you depended on to breed to, to, for your sustenance and for your livelihood, and you take the best one, and this is what you offer the Lord. I, I, I quoted Proverbs 3, verse 9, that said, Honor to God with your, with your wealth by giving of your first fruits. Imagine you took the best that you had, and you offered it to God. It cost something. But there would be relief as you saw this animal slaughtered, and the priests would look back at you and say, Your sins have been forgiven. How, much, how good that would feel and how relieved you would be. The animal had to die so that you could live. And they understood this. The, the sacrificial system is, is an incredible preview of God's ultimate plan in a blood sacrifice of his only son for the total satisfaction of sin. And in this, Leviticus proves to us that we have an absolute need for Jesus. And that's our final point. It, it proves our absolute need for Jesus. Verse 11 through 18, as it goes on to this third section, it, it, it often refers to the Ten Commandments. Uh, many of these are familiar as they recall back to the Ten Commandments. To be holy is to keep the, God, the Word of God entirely, and specifically, and in particular, the moral laws of God summarized in the Ten Commandments. How are you doing with the Ten Commandments. I mean, this is why he tells us these things. It caused all these tedious laws can no doubt cause us to ask ourselves, how are we doing? Has greed ever 
kept you from helping people in need with what you have? Have you ever been dishonest in relationships? Have you ever hated a brother or sister in Christ in your heart and wanted harm to come their way? Have you ever failed to love your neighbor as yourself? Have you ever lusted in your heart and have those lusts ever acted out in actions? Those are just a couple. Have you ever lied and given false testimony because you would lose something? If you have failed at at any of these and more, you, and and I am having been guilty of this and more, deserve to be cut off from God and the community of his people forever because of those things and, and more. And Leviticus helps us to reject this idea that, that Christianity is meant to be an easy, feel-good religion that requires no sacrifice. Leviticus helps us realize that you, couldn't, you and I couldn't get anywhere near to God without a sacrifice. But what if God doesn't demand your blood? And what if he came offering his own blood to be shed for you? What if there was a scenario... I don't know, I'm spitballing here. What if God said, you know what, I'm going to spare your blood and I'm going to give you my own? How could you not be moved to rest in that and to rely on that and to learn more about that? I was attending a church service several months ago. It wasn't here, and the first couple songs of the lyrics of the, the songs that were being sung had a lot of reference to the blood, the blood of Christ. And as I was leaving, I heard someone kind of walking by me and that mumbled themselves, there have to be so much blood. What is with those songs? Can't God just forgive us without all the blood? I mean, can't God just say, I'm a loving God, I'm a forgiving God, you're forgiven. Can't he just do that? I mean, that's what I would do if I were God. Can't you just wipe the slate clean? Can't Christianity be just a feel-good religion of moral improvement? Just be better, and I'll help you along the way. But when we understand the seriousness of sin, what it really means to be unclean, what it means to have a holy God and to be a sinful person, as Leviticus does so good at helping us realize what it means to be cut off from God because of our sin, we will understand why we need such a graphic substitute, why we need shed blood, why God needed to die us because God is holy and just and can't let sin go unpunished. He requires payment for sin. He requires a sacrifice. And the New New Testament book of Hebrews has been called often as a commentary on the book of Leviticus in many ways. And here's how the writer of Hebrews comments on the, the sacrifices in Leviticus. Let's look together in Hebrews 10 verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my laws on their hearts, and I'll write them on their minds. Then he adds, I'll remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Hebrews comments on Leviticus and teaches us that changed behavior doesn't save us, that being like Jesus in our morality doesn't 
save us, that being a better person doesn't save us, and that, that even animal sacrifices in the end don't save us. That too often the Christian view of holiness is like this story. Two guys are in the woods, and they encounter a bear, and one man goes to his duffel bag, and his backpack, he changes his shoes, taking off his hiking shoes, and puts on his running shoes. And the other man says, there's no way you're going to outrun that bear. And the first man says, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. <laughs> right? Too often, our view of holiness, what it means to be holy in God's eyes, has so much to do with how am I doing in comparison to everyone else? Am I a good person? Have I changed some habits in my life that are sinful to God? Yeah, that's got to be good for something, right? That's got to get me somewhere with God. And God says, you deserve to be cut off from relationship with me and the body of Christ, the family of God forever. Working hard at being good, being better than others, following the golden rule, these things will change you. They will. They will change you into a moral person, an ethical person. They'll change you into a, a good citizen. But they will not transform you. It will not write the laws of God and the love of God on your heart and your mind. The only thing that will work is to know that Jesus' love is enough to die for you and resting in his sacrifice for your once and for all offering for God. That in spite of all that we have failed to do and all of our sins, that your sins have been put away forever because of what Jesus has done. Jesus' shedding of blood on the cross and when we believe this, when we rest in his substitute for us, do you see what happens? Hebrews 10, 16 says, I will put the laws of God on your hearts and write them on your minds. What he's saying is when you trust Jesus, it doesn't cause you to be less holy. It actually causes you to be more holy. It causes you to be more obedient. It compels you to actually please God in your life. Because our hearts are changed. When we trust in Jesus, he writes the laws of God on our hearts and minds. We're changed. We want to please Him. We want to love Him. We want to search Scripture and say, God, how can I obey You and be holy as You are holy? How can I conform to Your image? How can I have fellowship with You in joy and with a clear conscience? Leviticus should still echo in our hearts and minds as we read it that it is a dangerous thing to neglect God's call for His people to be holy. And in one sense, we, we are, we're already holy. This is what the Apostle Peter tells us as he writes to the church. He says, you're a holy people. He says, you're, you're a holy nation. Speaking of Christians who trust in Jesus, he says, you're holy for the word of God has, has made you clean. You Once you were a people that didn't have mercy, but now you're a people who, who do have God's mercy and you're, you're a new creation. You're in, you have a new identity. You're, you're set apart. You are purified by the blood of Jesus. And he, Jesus has made a once and for all sacrifice for your sins, and he, you have been, been accepted by God. And in another sense, in, in an equal sense, he says you're still being, you're, you're pursuing holiness. You're growing in holiness. And so we have this position with God that is holy, that is accepted in the love of Christ that can't be taken away. And in another sense, we are being we're growing in holiness. Wherever we come across a, a commandment in God's words, we are to take it seriously. Even as Christians, we are to say, God has commanded me to be holy, to be obedient. 
we're to humbly recognize all the times that we fail to do this in so many ways, whether it's how we talk about people and how we sin against our brother and sister in our heart, how, how we uh, fail to be generous with the gifts of God, how we fail to, uh, to emulate the love of Christ in our life, how we fail to pursue Him, how we fail to come to His Word and hear from Him. I mean, all these things, we come to His commands, how we show partiality with people, depending on what we think that they can offer to us. We treat people differently. We are to humbly recognize that we are sinners, and then we should be reminded of how Jesus fulfilled all of these commands perfectly, that He was the perfect Lamb, the spotless Lamb, the perfect sacrifice with no blemish, and His blood was shed, shed for us. And then we should see how God's Spirit is living within us to empower us to be obedient to God in everything that He commands for us. And when we do this, you see, Jesus acts as our high priest. There's these two amazing pictures in Leviticus, one of sacrifice and one of the high priest who offers the sacrifice on behalf of God's people. And do you see what Jesus is doing? That Jesus is not only bringing the sacrifice and going to God the Father on our behalf, but He is the sacrifice. He takes our feeble attempts at obedience and makes them perfect by His blood. When we trust in Jesus, it causes us to go to the Word of God, and wherever there's a command that is uttered by God, it says, I want to please you. I want to obey you. We're motivated by His grace, by His love. I hope you see how Leviticus is a beautiful book. As tedious as it is, it is beautiful. But all these ritual laws, all these purification laws, because well, do we have to do those? We see that all these purity laws are fulfilled in Christ as they were looking forward to Christ. And these moral laws are not abolished, they're not taken away, but they are only reiterated, they're only strengthened. We're only empowered in Christ and by His Spirit to obey God in these ways. So let's pursue holiness. Not as people just looking to outrun the person next to us, but as people have a love for Jesus out of a gratitude in our hearts and a thanksgiving and a love for Him. Let's pray.